Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. Now, what you're about to listen to is a teaching lesson from our Wednesday night study series entitled, What is God Like? A Study of the Attributes of the Almighty. Go ahead and grab your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to do things um, a little bit differently tonight. Um, As I told you at the beginning, we're going to be wrapping up our um, Attributes of God study tonight. This has encompassed several months of study. Uh, We've taken some a pretty in-depth look at the attributes of God, and all along the way we have prefaced with saying and understood that uh, we're not going to capture all that God is. We're we're not going to, um, we're not, we're not going to be able to fully examine every part of his, uh, of his being because he's just too great. He's, he's too infinite. He's too everything. And we are just not. Um, So our aim hasn't been to just know everything that we can know our aim has been to, to grow in the knowledge of God, that we may serve Him more, that we may love Him more deeply, know His love towards us more deeply, uh, understand the gospel more deeply, etc., etc., etc. And so as I was thinking about how to do tonight's study and, and kind of close out the attributes of God, um, I was what came to mind to do would be instead of just listing off the things that we've learned, while that would still be beneficial, I think that it might not be exactly efficient. Um, So what we're going to do is through this text in Ephesians that we're going to read in just a bit, we're going to try to see the attributes of God, all of the attributes of God that we studied. We're going to go through each one, one by one, and look at and see them here in our text. The point of this is to be is, is really twofold. It's to uh, learn how to apply what we've learned and, and apply it to scripture reading and, and also so that we can gain a deeper understanding of the gospel. Uh, because that is truly, through the plan of redemption, that's truly where we see all of God's attributes on full, glorious display. So the aim will be tonight um, to go that through that and then to leave here just worshiping God, encouraged in the Lord that this is the God we serve, that it's this God, not, not some other God, not just some, some puny God who, who ends up on a coffee mug. Not that coffee mug, you know, the, the Christian coffee mugs are a bad thing. I have a few. But he's more than that. He's greater. He's bigger. He's more glorious. He's more marvelous, etc. and so on. So we're going to read tonight Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Um, so I know that might be seem like a lot of scripture reading for you, but you'll be okay. So let's read it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Everyone said, Amen, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, I pray that at this time, Lord, that you help us to focus, that you help us to, to set aside distraction, Lord. I pray that you give me the ability to do, to do this tonight, Lord, to talk about all of your attributes in the gospel, Lord. Who can even begin such an undertaking, Lord? None of us, no one, I certainly can't, but by your spirit, with your power, Lord, I believe that we can be edified tonight, God. So I pray that you, you do the work by your spirit in all of our hearts, God, that we would grow in the knowledge of God, that we would leave here tonight worshiping you, God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, tonight we're not going to have any slides or anything like that because there's kind of a lot of ground that we're going to cover and uh, just kind of felt it might be a little distracting um, for the viewer, but also for me um, because I'm kind of manning this live show by myself, so that's a lot of, it's a lot of work to do. Um, so grab a pen, grab a paper if you don't have one already, and just take notes as we go along. So we're going to look at our text to see the attributes of God that we have already studied. So we're going to do a bit of a review as we go through each attribute, just because I know it's been a long time since we've heard some of these, and it's been several months um, since we've done these studies. Plus, I know that there are some people who didn't catch all the studies. So, we first opened up with God is self-existent. 
which meant that he is self-sufficient. We learned that this is the aseity of God. That's what the term that theologians use. And I, I don't want you to be scared of, of terms that theologians use because there's value there. So it's the aseity of God, which means his self-existence, his self-sufficiency, that he doesn't need anyone or anything. In this, we understand that he does not act out of compulsion, that everything that he does, he doesn't need to do anything. He does it because he chooses to. We understand that we are not like that, right? We have to eat a meal because otherwise we'll die. We'll starve to death. We have to drink water. Otherwise, we'll get dehydrated. We have to sleep. Otherwise, we'll get big bags under our eyes. Uh, that's not the worst thing that will happen, but we need sleep. We need to rest and recharge. We have to breathe. Otherwise, we'll suffocate and die. So we are ever dependent upon the Lord. We are not self-sufficient. We are not self-existent. We only exist because God put us here. So we're not like him. He's nothing like us. He has no need of anything. He's never grown hungry or needed someone to, to tend to his needs. All that he does, he does because he chooses to. That word might sound familiar because in our text it says he chose us in him. That him is Christ before the foundation of the world. So do you see that? That he chose us in him, in Christ. He didn't choose us because of us. He chose us in Jesus, apart from us, totally independent of us. This means that and we also learn of God's self-existence because it says that he chose us before the foundations of the world. So this means that he must have, he had to have been around before the foundation of the world to be able to accomplish this. I, I can't say that I, I chose something or decided to do something or, or thought something before the foundation of the world. I am not eternal. I'm not self-existent. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm, I'm none of those things. Neither are you. And so only God can lay claim to being able to do something before the foundation of the world. Before there was a planet that could sustain life, God already was. He, he didn't need a planet to sustain his life or to give him life. No, he is the life giver. He is the life sustainer. So he has nothing that no need of, of anything, no reason, that no, no, no uh, coercion, no one talks him into doing things. No one forces his hand. And we see this brilliantly with the mention several times that he chose us. He didn't need to. He had no need of us. He had no need of his children. He chose them. It was his right. It was his prerogative. And he chose us in Jesus, having no need of us. We studied that God is spirit. 
And in that we understood that he is he's immaterial, he's invisible, he is infinite. And we see our text saying in, in verse 3 that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our God inhabits heaven and fills all of his creation because he is spirit. And as such, he has blessed us spiritually. He blesses his children with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. His realm, his dominion, his kingdom. Now, this is not to say that he never blesses us in the material sense. Obviously, that's not true. You're probably holding a $1,000 phone in your hand. So we're blessed materially as well. But the most profound and important and impactful blessings that God bestows upon his children are spiritual, because that is his essence. He is spirit. So he blesses spiritually. He blesses us in the heavenly places. And that is more meaningful because those blessings are infinite. You can be given a car, a nice car, a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, a uh, whatever your dream car is, whatever it is. And eventually, the, 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 the draw, the, the shine, the sparkle is going to wear away. You can be buy a new home and be a proud homeowner, and that's a big accomplishment. But eventually, it's just a home, and it's just a place where you go. And eventually, it's going to decay and perish. Even the blessing of, of marriage I love my wife dearly. I do. But even that eventually will end by, by nature of our lives ending. But the gifts that God bestows upon his children never end because they are spiritual. Because God is spirit. At the moment of regeneration, he puts his seal of his Holy Spirit within us. You see that right here at the at the end of at the end of uh, verse thirteen, that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and that is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We will get the blessings that God has blessed us with in the heavenly places because He has blessed us with the Holy Spirit. And he's put his Holy Spirit within us, who is the guarantee that we will get our inheritance. It will happen. It is a guarantee from God Almighty. And his Holy Spirit residing within you is proof and guarantee of that fact. Our God, who is Spirit, blesses us with every spiritual blessing and seals us with his Holy Spirit we learned about God's omnipresence, that God is present at every point in his entire creation and is not constrained to physical limitations. And we know, we see this in our text because he, he, he is spirit and he's not constrained to physical limitations. I cannot be where you are, though I am being um, simulcasted into and streamed into your living room or your bedroom or your, your car or your workplace, wherever you're at, 
I'm not physically there. I'm not actually there. But God being spirit, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's here with me right now. He's there with you where you are. He's in China. He's on Neptune. He's in the furthest expanses of the universe. He's everywhere. There is no height that you can ascend to or depth you can descend to. No corner you can hide in. No valley you can travel through. No water you can drown in or storm you can get caught in, whether real or metaphorical, where God is not present. <laughs> How beautiful. How wonderful is this? In verse 13 there, we see that he gives us his promised Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is within us. Now, this attribute of God's omnipresence is not explicit here in the text, but we do see and understand that, that for him to unite all things in heaven and on earth and to have his spirit in all of his children, that he must be everywhere at once. By nature of him being spirit, he fills all things. The fact that when anyone across time and space who hears the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believes in him is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit is evidence of God's omnipresence. The fact that when that happens at any point in, in history, any point in the future, or any point on this earth, that it happens that when, when we come to saving faith, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within us. Just by virtue of, of, of this act, he must be omnipresent. How can a man in Texas and a woman in China hear the gospel and be sealed with the Holy Spirit if God is not omnipresent? He is everywhere at once. We learned about God being omnipotent. that He has all power over all things at all times in all ways, and there is no power that exists outside of him. God's power is inexhaustible and irresistible. God is mighty to save, mighty to preserve, and mighty to keep his promises. How mighty must this God be to be able to accomplish all of this? I mean, I mean just think about everything that we just read through all of the things that he chose and predestined and willed, how mighty is he to be able to accomplish all of these things across human history? As finicky as humans are, he still was, his hand, his plan was not deterred or derailed for a moment. Everything has happened and played out the way he said because he's omnipotent, his power is, is irresistible. That he could plan to send his son at an appointed time in human history and then carry out that plan of salvation and redemption is in itself incredible. Not only did Christ come to this earth, but as we read here in verse 7, we see that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, one of the greatest displays of God's power is in him lifting mountains of sin off of sinful people. What a magnificent display of his omnipotence that he can take sinful, 
weak-willed men and women remove their mountain of sin and guilt and cause them to be holy and blameless before him is a truth that we ought to be astounded by. We learned of God's omniscience, that God knows absolutely everything perfectly and exhaustively. He knows all that was, all that is, and all that is to come. Thus, he knows exactly what he is doing in saving sinners. He knows exactly all that you've done. Nothing that you've done in, in your life or that you will do comes as a surprise to the Almighty. He's, om, he's omniscient. He's, he knows everything. In, in verse 8, let's look at, look at verse 8 here with us. He says, Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, and insight. And at that moment, he's talking about God's grace, that God lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. What's, what's Paul saying here? God knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing in lavishing his grace upon sinners. He knows exactly what he's doing. He then says that he made known to us the mystery of his will. You see, we aren't informing God of anything. He informs us. He lets us, in. he fills us in to the mystery of his will. It's his will. And he chooses to reveal it to us or not. And, and he does through the cross, through Jesus Christ. That's incredible. God's omniscience. That God knows all things. He knew what he wanted to do. He chose to choose us in him to be holy and blameless before him. We see that in verse 4. He wanted to predestine us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 5. So that it would result in praise of his glorious grace. We see that in verse 6. So he knew that to do this, we would need to be redeemed and forgiven. Because he knew we would become sinful people. He knew only Christ's righteousness would be able to hold up in the high courts of heaven. So he sent him forth to redeem us by shedding his blood. We see that in verse 7. This was his plan all along to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him. Verses 9 and 10. This God who knows all of these things in, in, in such great detail from, from eternity past, from, from before the foundations of the earth. Listen, dear Christian, he is not in danger of forgetting any of his children. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. You may fear that the Lord has passed you by, but it is not so. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. How beautiful is that? We learn that God is good. It means that God is good in all ways, in all things, at all times. He is good in nature, in thought, in desire, in plan, and in action. God does not define good. 
God, I'm sorry, good does not define God. God defines good. God shows his goodness to us both before and after salvation. Again, God's goodness is not explicit here in the text. It's not written that God is good, so he did these things. But his goodness is all over this passage in that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 3, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not, not one, not two, not some, not most. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He predestined us for adoption. Verse 5. He did it. He predestined us. He set us aside, chose us out of all people, set us aside and chose us to be his before we were ever born. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. He didn't have to do that. It could have just been completely hidden. That's verse 9. He redeemed us through his blood. Verse 7. How, how good is this God to redeem us by shedding his own blood? He lavished upon us his grace, verses 7 and 8. He lavished upon us his grace. That, that means there was so much. It's, it's overflowing. It's ridiculous how much grace he has given us. Because this is a good God. He sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13. He promised us an inheritance, verse 11, and he has guaranteed that inheritance to us, verse 14. Then we see also his goodness displayed to us in that while we were yet sinners, in active rebellion against him, he did not change his mind or recant. He chose you apart from you. He stuck with his plan that he had established before we were even born and before the world itself ever even existed. Wrap your head around that. He could have changed his mind about sending his son to the world, but he didn't. Instead, he sent Christ to be the propitiation of our sins, that we might be redeemed through his blood and so lay claim all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. That's a good God. We learned that God is immutable and unchanging, which is unchanging. God is both unchanging and unchangeable in all of his ways, his character and his attributes. He is not only unchanging, but he has no need of changing for better or for worse because he's perfect. He has no need to change. You and I, we need to change a myriad of, of qualities, a myriad of, uh, of aspects of our lives, but not God. He's perfect as he is. And again, this is not explicit in the text, but as we think of what this passage is saying in that he, he predestined us unto salvation and adoption, we see that God did not change his mind towards us. We talked about that a bit ago in talking about the goodness of God. His choosing of us was not hingent upon us in the first place. You see, he can't, he can't base his decision on us because you and I are finicky. I, I, I always liken it to uh, how hard it is to find a place to eat dinner. I mean, that's like the, the age-old 
difficult question is where are we going to eat dinner tonight? And so we could not choose God and God's not going to base his choosing of us on us because then he might have to change his mind. But he can't because he's immutable. He's unchanging. So he chose us before the foundation of the world. Our, his choosing of us was not hinged upon us. It didn't depend on us. It wasn't because of anything we thought or did or said. It was entirely independent of us, and thanks be to God to that for that. He has sent to us his promised Holy Spirit to seal us as a guarantee that he won't recant. Verse 14, he will not change his mind. Those who are his are his. If you belong to God, you will always belong to God. His Holy Spirit within you is a guarantee of that fact. He puts his spirit in his children and says, I'm not taking this back. You're mine now, forever, because he's unchanging in all of his ways. From generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting, our God remains the same perfect and unchanging in all his ways. Paul Washer once said, I have given God countless reasons not to love me, and none of them has been strong enough to change him. We learn that God is sovereign, that God has the right and the ability to do all that he pleases, when he pleases and however he pleases. It is what makes God God. He reigns above all and does whatever he desires. He is able to save. He has the right not to. He can save, but it's his prerogative whether or not to do so because God is God. It's his choice. It's his salvation. It's his heaven. It's his gospel. It's his inheritance. It's all his. It's his right to deal it out as he sees fit. Now this text is overflowing with evidence of God's sovereignty from the fact that he, is, he was even able to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. From verse 3, the fact that he can even do that, that he has the ability or the right or the authority to bless us that way. He's sovereign. That he chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, again, as, as we've been repeating this, this, this whole time tonight, he, he didn't have to choose us. He chose us from his own free will and volition because he's sovereign and he does all that he pleases and who can stay his hand or look at him and wonder, what have you done? He wasn't coerced or forced into choosing us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So we couldn't have even been there to talk him into it or to beg or plead him, plead with him or to force his hand even if we could. He did it when no one was around. No one existed before the foundation of the world. But not only did he choose us before the foundation of the world, he then laid the foundation of the world because God is sovereign. That he had the authority to predestine us to adoption. Verse 5. That he even had the authority to say, these are mine, I'm predestining you, you, you to adoption. That's a sovereign God. That we have redemption in Him 
shows us that he executed the whole plan on his own. Verse 7 opens up that in him this happens. In him, in Christ, totally apart from you or I, he accomplishes salvation for us. We need only believe. We need only put our faith in him and repent of our sins. And we will have this blessed salvation. Then, and it was God that we needed to be redeemed unto. And it was God who then redeemed us. That he then forgives sins. Verse 7 again. We learn from the story of of the paralytic man in Mark chapter 2. That only God can forgive sins. Only God can. Why? Because he's sovereign. He has the authority alone. Nobody else does. Most importantly, we see Paul say that he is an apostle according to the will of God. Verse 1. And that he predestined us for adoption according to his will. Verse 5. That he made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 9. These things are evidence that God was and is completely sovereign in the choices that he makes because he is only consulting his will. He's executing his will throughout all of human history. Moreover, verse 11 shows us that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. It is according to the counsel of his own will. God's sovereignty is why we can stake our whole lives on the promises of God. He doesn't make empty promises or idle threats. He is sovereign. Thus, he is able to accomplish all that he says. God has the right and ability to choose to save whoever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and however he pleases. He possesses and exercises supreme authority over salvation. We thank God this is true. Because without him electing to save, some none would be saved. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. We learn of God's holiness, which is his inherent and transcendent majesty. His absolute moral perfection, completely distinct above creation. Indeed, there is none like him, as we sang a moment ago. Our sin, our sin is an affront to his holiness. Yet he makes the unholy holy through Jesus Christ. You see that that in verse 4, that he chose us in him to be, that we should be holy and blameless before him and he had to make us holy and blameless he did this because he is holy and in order for us to be in communion with him we must be holy we have no holiness of our own but through christ he makes us positionally holy and it is through god's choosing us to be redeemed and forgiven of our trespasses through the blood of christ That we are made holy. That's what we see in verse 7. Again, that we are redeemed through the blood, through the forgiveness of trespasses. 
through Jesus Christ. We are then sealed with the Holy Spirit, verse 13, who regenerates us and he causes us to grow in holiness. That is the Christian's life is they are made to be holy before God and they will then grow in holiness, putting off the things of the world, dying to their flesh and growing in Christ's likeness. And this happens because of the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. We learned about God's wrath. God's wrath is his eternal hatred of every manner of unrighteousness. It is his holiness stirred into action against sin. I wish I could remember who said that, because that was an incredible quote. I believe it was Steve Lawson. God's wrath abides on us and was then poured on Christ. So we are now saved from God's wrath. Now, how do we see God's wrath in this text? Look at the mention of redemption through his blood in verse 7. Just, just look at those words. Redemption through his blood. Blood was spilled on our account. God's hatred for sin is so profound that the only remedy for our sinful condition the only way for us to be redeemed was Jesus Christ coming to the earth to take on a body like ours and spill his blood. God's wrath can only be appeased by the shedding of blood. And only the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to atone for our sins. And this is why we cannot earn our own Righteousness. We have to just put our faith in the work of Christ because he bore the wrath that you and I deserved. We learned about God's foreknowledge, that it is God's loving and knowing of an individual in a personal, intimate, and redemptive sense from all eternity. We see this in verse 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption, verse 5. And we have been, been predestined according to the purpose of God, verse 11. There it is, chosen, predestined, chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined in love. This is all pointing to the foreknowledge of God. He chose his elect before the foundations of the world, knowing every single moment of backsliding, every last sin, that his elect would commit, yet this did not deter him. He knew you, he chose you, he loved you, all before the world was even created. Learn about God's grace, which is God's unmerited favor towards sinners. We learn that salvation is all of grace and grace alone. We learn in verse 8, he forgave us our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 6, he predestined us to adoption that we might praise him for how gracious he is. God's unmerited favor is seen all over this passage in God choosing us, God predestining us, God redeeming us, God forgiving us, and God saving us. 
What we are deserving of is God's wrath. But God has chosen out of his own free will to extend his grace to his children. John Piper defines grace this way, and I don't think I've heard anyone say it better. That grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. How beautiful is that? And lastly, we learn about God's love. His love is displayed towards us in loving us despite us, in dying for us while we were yet his enemies. His love will extend into all eternity, for it was from all eternity. God's love towards his elect is unfathomable. It is in love that he predestined us. Verse 4 says that, that in love we have been predestined. While it is true that we have not coerced God's saving hand, and that we are not owed God's grace, this does not diminish the fact that God did all that he did because he loves us. Jesus standing in our place on the cross absorbing our punishment is the greatest act of love anyone could ever imagine. In love, he did all of this. In love, he did all of this. This is an incredible, unfathomable, unquenchable, everlasting love. Verse 14 ends with, to the praise of his glory. What do we do with all of this information? What do we do now that we know all of this about God's attributes? We do what verse 14 says. To the praise of his glory. We praise him. We praise him for his aseity. That he is spirit. We praise him for his omnipresence. For his omniscience. That he is all powerful. For his goodness. For his immutability. Praise Him that He is sovereign, that He is holy, that He is wrathful. Praise Him for His foreknowledge, for His unfathomable grace and His never-ending love. Praise Him for who He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, stand amazed you. It is utterly overwhelming to behold our God. Lord, let this knowledge, this head knowledge, turn into worship. Lord, let us be people that grow in our knowledge of God, not so that we can win debates or arguments but so we can put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk in a manner pleasing to you. Cause us, Lord, to worship you for who you are, not for what you do or for what you give. 
Help us, Lord, to see your attributes on full display all throughout your word, all throughout creation, all throughout our lives, that we may be devoted to you and that we may worship you and glorify you in all that we do in every way. We pray for these things, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.